belt. And you have been listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to another episode of The Week on 3. I'm your host, Christy Lai. It has been quite chilly this past week. Hope you stayed warm and dry. If it's your first time tuning in, I'll be selecting a few of the most interesting interviews from the past week here on Radio 3. Let's start today's program with something that we can all benefit from. On Friday, Radio 3 had the honor of inviting Financial Secretary Paul Chan to discuss his latest budget plan with Money Talk host Peter Lewis. Mr. Chan answered a variety of questions from listeners and gave his opinion about issues that we can all learn from. Here is a snippet of what Mr. Chan thinks about Hong Kong's economic growth. Well, perhaps the economies in the market uh, may not have the benefit of the information, may not, may not have the benefit of the scale of the stimulus package that we are putting forward. My assessment is that in the first quarter of this year, the economic situation is really bad. Uh, we may even go into a negative growth. But with the support of the central government and the assistance rendered by the different central authorities and the municipal authorities, and also the uh, united efforts, concerted effort of the government and the people of Hong Kong, I'm very confident that within the next two, three months, the pandemic situation here will be brought under control. And thereafter, if we follow the COVID-19 policy, like last year, uh, the economy will return to the normal track. People will come out, uh, have their ordinary activities and then spend. Uh, with the launching of the second round of the consumption voucher scheme, uh, also the very resilient foundation of the Hong Kong economic structure, I think the second half of the year uh, will be a lot better. Of course, this will be subject to a lot of uncertainties, uh, pandemic situation globally, as well as the geopolitical situation. But on the one hand, we have to be very careful to get ourselves prepared for the volatility in the capital market and the changing external conditions. But on the other hand, we remain confident that if we, if we are able to bring this pandemic situation under control in the next two, three months, and then be able to revive the traveling between Hong Kong and the mainland, and with the increase in the vaccination rate, uh, with the development in the international market, the drugs for the treatment of COVID, it is hopeful that we will be also able to uh, start the international traveling in the latter part of this year. And do you have any idea of when that will happen? Because it, it probably it's not possible, is it, to make a, a real economic projection without knowing when our borders are going to reopen? Yeah, we try our best to do the assessment the best we can. Uh, well, you know, at the beginning of this year, we were, we were about to announce the restart of the traveling between Hong Kong and the mainland on a quarantine-free basis. But because of this wave of uh, Omicron, uh, of course, this had been put to shelf. It is quite hopeful that uh, if, we were, if we are able to bring this wave of attack under control and then 
keep the dynamic zero situation, we would be able to restart the border with the mainland without quarantine restrictions uh, towards the end of the second quarter or in third quarter. But you're doing something that no other country or territory has succeeded in doing, mm-hmm. bringing cases down to zero or close to zero from levels as high as we are seeing now. Melbourne tried it. They locked down the city's residents for three months. It cost the economy over a thousand jobs a day. And the strategy didn't even bring cases even close to zero. And that was before the more infectious Omicron variant struck. So why does the Hong Kong government think it's, it's discovered a way of dealing with the pandemic that's escaped the rest of the world and other governments aren't doing? I think the mainland has succeeded in doing this. Not saying that there, there, there was no such COVID cases. We are not aiming at zero cases. But the point is, when those cases arise, it will be quickly identified, contained, the related people would be properly isolated and treated so as to keep the disruption to the daily life of the people to the minimum within a very short period of time so that we can back to normal as quickly as possible. Are you prepared that maybe we could be in the situation, maybe not too long off, uh, where the majority of Hong Kong residents have have caught COVID and and that will be the way it is and then living with COVID will be forced upon us because we have no other choice. Are you preparing that that could be a possibility? Well, I do not want to speculate, but under the leadership of the CE and with the concerted effort of the whole community, we are confident that we would be able to bring this under control within a comparatively short period of time. And as, as uh, mentioned by the CE, there would be a compulsory universal uh, testing uh, followed by proper isolation and treatment in the coming months. And that was Financial Secretary Paul Chan speaking to Peter Lewis on Friday. If you would like to rewatch the program, you can head over to our Facebook page at RTHK Radio 3 Hong Kong or on our website at rthk.hk slash radio slash radio 3. Last Monday was the closing of the 2022 Winter Olympics, and my, it was spectacular. Over a course of 19 days, more than 2,897 athletes from over 91 nations participated in more than 100 events. RTHK sports reporter Adam Zhang reflects on the games with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse and things that we can look out for later on this year. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at uh, the sporting performances, uh, definitely a success. Like you said, they are third in the final medals table. They've got nine goals. That's a record for China. That's four better than their previous best. Uh, They had five in Vancouver in 2010. So this is a big leap. So, uh, yeah, successful for China uh, in that sense. They did get uh, 15 medals in total. So, yeah, think about it, nine. Uh, more than half of their total medals are golds. So, so that's good news for China. Um, looking at uh, the rest of the table, though, Norway uh, ran away with this. They got 16 goals to uh, lead all countries for the third straight <laughs> Olympics. seems to be Norway. <laughs> yeah, and they, they also topped the table in uh, total medals with 37. Uh, Germany had 12, so they're second. Interesting thing for China, though, they got nine goals, as we mentioned. Uh, one more than the United States mm-hmm. and Sweden mm-hmm. and Netherlands. Mm-hmm. I think presidency will be 
hosting a glass of celebration <laughs> after last night, uh, especially uh, on that one. I, I, I thought it was uh, very not. We think of Chinese athletes as being very, very hardworking and, and super fit. But one of the things that came through to me this time was the creativity and the artistry in the skating. Yeah. It, and uh, it was an extra dimension to the Chinese performance. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with the figure skating, uh, you're talking about the uh, gold medal winning performance by uh, this pair from Harbin. Uh, Han Chong and Sui Wing Jing, uh, they won gold in the pairs figure skating. Um, I, I kind of saw this coming, and, and I think th they looked beautiful on ice. They were silver medalists in the last Olympics, and they carried out their routine this time very gracefully, and uh, also uh, managed to break a world record in points in the process. They actually narrowly uh, beat the Russian pair. It was stunning, 0.62 or something, exactly. tiny margin. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's good for them because uh, four years ago they did lose to another Russian pair, so it's good to see this time China topping the podium with uh, two Russian pairs finishing second and third. And a look at the uh, the gold medals uh, on the final day, uh, a win for Finland in the, in the hockey. Yeah, shout out to Finland, their first ever men's hockey Olympic title, uh, despite reaching the podium in four of the last five Olympics. I had to look this up. I'm surprised that Finland has never won a hockey title in the Olympics. So good for them. Uh, they, of course, uh, led by former NHL star Vil uh, Valtteri Vilpula and uh, dethroning the Russians in the gold medal game winning 2-1 and finally a, a, a medal for for Great Britain too in fact <laughs> yeah think. yeah and, and we should mention this I mean uh, Britain sent a very small team to Beijing this time they had only 50 athletes so uh, they did win gold on the final day of the games courtesy of the women's curling team led by skipper Eve Muirhead uh, as they uh, defeated Japan 10-3 they actually had a chance at double gold but the men's team lost uh, to Sweden a day earlier and had to settle for silver I watched that in, uh, <laughs> amazingly it was just not my sport, but it was intriguing. It was it was down to the last end. They went into extra, yeah, an extra end. They lost just five four. Yeah, it was uh, well. The Swedes didn't roll their last one because the the British ones were all outside the circle. Mm. So, but it was it was tight, really really tight. Yeah, it's tight. It's an exciting watch, but I've heard some people say it's therapeutic. To watch the, the rocks collide <laughs> and see how close you get to the center. Yeah. It makes they make a sort of satisfying clunk. As right. Well. Well, the last, the last, it was the last one on the on the tenth that evened it up. In fact, because the British had to knock out the Swedes out of the circle in order to tie the game up. Exactly. Exactly. Force so, it into extra extra mm, pushing. Mm, mm. <laughs> and uh, the Germany dominant in the bobsled. Yes, uh, so uh, they call him the uh, the bobsled king. He is Francesco Friedrich. Uh, he won the um, he led the uh, German team to victory in the four men bobsled, and he's the first athlete to win both the four man bobsled and the two man event twice. So uh, it's it's funny because. Uh, we mentioned how Germany finished second in the medals table. Actually, they've won nine of the 10 sliding events. And so, yeah, nine out of their, their 12 goals came from either the bobsled, the luge, or the skeleton. He must be fearless, this guy. <laughs> that small vehicle going down yeah. on hell of a speed. Exactly, in that speed and with, uh, you know, the rest of your team behind you. And a very nice uh, closing ceremony and a, 
I enjoyed the rendition of Old Lang Syne as well. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, passing the flag to uh, the next uh, host, uh, yeah. Italy. Mil- in, uh, Mil- Milano. And, yeah, they uh, call it Cortina, t- 2026 Milano Cortina. Mm. So uh, it, it's interesting. The game's going back to Italy for the first time since Turin, 2006. Because right. yeah. technically it's cities, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than countries. But, exactly. But it's the national anthem that gets played. So. Yeah, yeah, and this time they have it in two cities, so it's Milan and Cortina. And apparently Cortina has hosted the Winter Olympics before in the 50s. Mm. That's and, right. And of course, let, let's not forget the Winter Paralympics because the, they begin on March the 3rd. Right? Yeah, I want to talk about that too. So the Winter Paralympics start on the 4th of March. Uh, China yes. will have athletes uh, there for sure. Uh, there are uh, not as many sports, though, uh, than the main Olympics. So uh, you'll see sports like alpine skiing, uh, Nordic skiing, which inc- includes cross-country, uh, snowboarding, uh, para-ice hockey, and also more curling, uh, only this time on the wheelchair. RTHK sports reporter Adam Jung. Have you ever taken some sort of personality test before? Some say they're really accurate and some just don't believe in them at all. It's more of getting to understand yourself, and it's also an easier way to describe that self to others. On Thursday's 1 to 3 show, I spoke with Sadia Usmani about whether these tests actually reflect who you are. Okay, so um, the Myers-Briggs type indicator is developed in the 1940s by Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers. So uh, the test is basically broken down into uh, 16 personality types with each own strength and weakness. Uh, The thing about these tests, I think we've just mentioned it before is that you need to answer questions without thinking too much Mm. or choosing a specific answer that you think is better because it's just going to tamper the test and it's not going to reflect who you truly are or what you're actually who you're who you are as a person yeah and uh just more about that so um it uh basically divide person's personality leaning towards one of two in tendencies in the following groups. So it's either extroversion vs. introversion, intuition vs. sensing, thinking vs. feeling, and judging vs. perceiving. Mm-hmm. So it's the complete opposite of two things. And uh, there's 16 vari- variations of those types. Sadia, what's your MBTI? I'm just, it's, um, it's EST, I can't remember. Oh, I should reveal it. I've revealed, they're all going to look into it. <laughs> I, I, I know that when I did this some time ago, one, you know, and I mentioned this to you earlier too, is that you've just said it, that when you do these personality tests, for instance, with Myers-Briggs, I think they're about 75 questions that they ask mm-hmm. you, right? So they ask you questions about, like, you know, if you're about to go to this... Um, event and and this happens what would you do how would you yeah, feel exactly and and it's a variety of different things just a sense as to your reaction to certain things um and i think it's very easy sometimes when you look at those questions you sit there and contemplate and then what i was kind of doing is that when if you do it with people around you you tend to say 
oh, no, um, what would I do? And what do you think I would do? And then you ask yeah. the person next to you and they say, well, you would definitely go, you'd do that. And you think, okay, all right, yeah, I'd do that. So I think you need to not think too much about mm -hmm. it, as you said. Um, and also when you do it, you need to sort of just honestly be very honest. Yes, you need to be honest. And yeah. you, you can't choose answers that, you think yeah you should. think you, you should. should yeah and, and the other thing was that um you know you might do this quite say when you're quite young and you don't have too much experience whatever and then you might find that you know five years six years down the line when you do it again yes. you may have changed or you are in a long-term relationship and sometimes the way that you have you behave and, and see things has changed because of the interpretation of your partner exactly so you've got to sort of keep that in mind so I suppose it's not something that's in concrete you know, it can fluctuate just like anything else in life, isn't it? Yes. Um, actually, in a study that I've read, uh, research shows that the um, MBTI test is actually one of the most regularly de debunked personality tests. So it's basically saying that uh, research has shown that 50% of people got a different score when they retook the test five weeks later. Mm -hmm. So it can happen. Uh, to some people, it happened to me before, mm -hmm. and uh, the study has shown that the test is not effective at predicting people's success in different jobs. So maybe your son has took have taken a test, and uh, it might not reflect who he his maybe job abilities or mm, who he yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. So you can't really base everything on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I when I did mine, I got ESFJ mm -hmm. with a with a dash and a T, which um, which is like an extroverted and and look at feelings, judging. But it has kind of changed slightly. I think it was slightly different before. I, I do recall it said somewhere when I was reading. <laughs> That I was a bit of a drama queen, but that is not true. So it has changed. I'm sorry. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, when you read some of these things and then you just think, no, that, that's not me. That's just rubbish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to know. So how about you? How did it go for you? Do you think it was reasonably accurate? Um, okay, so maybe a couple of years ago when I was at uni or when I was slightly more younger, I was, uh, what do you say, uh, ENFP. So... Mm -hmm. Some someone who's very extroverted, enthusiastic, uh, sociable, free spirit. Uh -huh. But now I think last year and actually last night I tested for uh, INFJ. Oh, that's interesting. So you've yes. changed from an E, which is an extrovert, yes. to an introvert. Now, do you think the the I wonder whether you know the pandemic has had an effect on us in terms of we all become a little bit introverted now because we're not the social scene is just not there is it mm -hmm. you know we're not able to see and we've adapted to that to a certain extent actually i think so because we spend so much time just by ourselves in a small room you just forget how to socialize yeah. anymore yeah. and yeah, things happened and you're so isolated from everybody. You don't get to see your friends, you don't get to see your family, you don't get to attend social gatherings and maybe your train of thought or maybe how you see things might change. And that was Sadia Usmani speaking to me about personality types on Thursday's 1-2-3 show. Wine. You either love it or hate it. It is one of those things that you need to learn how to appreciate. Speaking of that, 
Did you know that someone actually made wine here in Hong Kong locally? Eddie McDowell was one of those winemakers that flew all over the world to source grapes to make the best wines with the best notes. He now resides in Macau, but shares with Phil Whelan about his adventures, his brand, and his time here in Hong Kong. Look, I think we, we've, um, you know, with, with our wines from New Zealand, um, they're, they're at a really different level of, of premium sort of flavour profile. And I think we um, make wines for a slightly more sophisticated drinker or more educated drinker oh, who's yeah. uh, well-travelled, um, probably um, has had some exposure to some of the finer wines, not just from uh, Europe, but also from the new, the new world. So these are um, like high-end, what we'd call Pinot new wine. wines, I suppose, Eddie. Yeah, so um, we, we've, we've produced mostly Pinot Noir. That, that's one of our um, flagship grape varietals. And, you know, from a, from a perspective of, you know, uh, the fine wine world, mm. you know, Pinot Noir is one of the more sophisticated in terms of aromas and taste profiles and so forth. So, you know, we've, you know, noticed that the Chinese consumer is really um, thirsty for, you know, these more complex and slightly more savory wine styles that we're producing. And um, as a result, you know, we're seeing our wines dotted in two, three-star Michelin restaurants all throughout mainland China. Really, really happy about it. Yeah, I bet you are indeed. You said savoury. That's interesting. Is that a lot to do with what it goes with? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, things, when it comes to savoury profiles, um, you know, it's more spicy and earthy. Um, you know, there's obviously an element of the oak that goes into the winemaking side of it as well. Yeah. But, you know, with, with our, um, you know, our, I guess, more hands-off approach to winemaking <laughs> and more focus on grape growing, uh, you know, we're able to extract these, you know, really uh, unique, unique, unique savoury characteristics in our wines. And, you know, our, our winemaking team are working harder than ever to, you know, just be more authentic about the production process as yeah. opposed to add too much in. So I've never heard the word savoury. That's fascinating. Is this something that you're owning a bit yourself? Uh, no. I think uh, a lot of winemakers uh, are striving for a balance of between, you know, something that has a bit of fruit and a bit of savouriness to it. Yeah. Um, you know, savoury can come across in all spectrums where it's more about spice and earthiness and um, as opposed to, to fruitiness, mm. um, you know, it, it's good. about striking the balance between the two. But look, I think uh, from a food pairing perspective, it, it works incredibly well across more flavor profiles. Yeah. Um, you know, people often can uh, perceive New Zealand always to be uh, a white wine producing country, which, you know, very successfully produces a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, which is very fruity and aromatic. Yeah. Um, but from a, from a red wine perspective, um, there's a lot more vibrancy in, in terms of, you know, the, the colour, the acidity in the wines, um, you know, almost that salivating effect that you get from... <laughs> it sounds um, wonderful. So, I mean, the last time we spoke on Morning Brew, Eddie, it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, and you were having your little shop at the top of Lang Kwai Fong. Boy, oh boy, things have changed since then. What made you decide to well, get in there and open the vineyard? Look, uh, it was always part of, part of the programme, um, you know, I think uh, making wine out of Australia was was it the original program that we had, but prior to even the, the Lang Kwai Fong shop, and then um, the the New Zealand opportunity came up because I think uh, you know we we wanted to you know this is the most overworked Gross. use pivot um, <laughs> yeah pivot our production towards a more um, premium 
uh, winemaking country, yeah. uh, which is more focused on smaller production, higher quality wines, um, which had great demand from around the world. Mm. Um, and, and New Zealand certainly got that. And, you know, what, what's great about New Zealand and given the times as well, you know, from a, both a, a, a food producing country yeah. um, and, and in this day and age when we all talk about sanitization, hygiene and cleanliness, yeah. New Zealand ticks all the boxes. So we've been, um, you know, we're sustainable, we're, we're environmentally conscious about what we do, um, you know, from right from the packaging to the way that we drive our tractors in the vineyards. Yeah, it's um, to- a story too, isn't it, Eddie, there? You can tell them your story. Yeah, look, it really is. And, you know, I can tell you now that our hardest working employee are, you know, 300 sheep that we bring in throughout the, <laughs> the start of summer to, to, to eat the grass, uh, to, you know, to, to leave their droppings along the, along the mid rows of the vineyards to help stimulate some stool, yeah. soil, uh, micro, micro, uh, micro, uh, growth. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we, we, like I said, we, we're trying to do, um, less, but preserve, um, you know, I guess the, the ultimate goal is that, you know, we have a responsibility as custodians of, of a vineyard that, you know, we need to improve and make better for the next generation. Can you just remind our listeners, Eddie, um, the very backstory here? Because I remember when you just started doing this, I mean, obviously a very small operation. Just remind our listeners yeah. how you got into all this making in the first place. I know you've told me before. Yeah, look, it, it all started, um, you know, in 07 when I started making wines in Australia in very small scale batches. And then the, the opportunity arose when um, the Hong Kong wine government abolished the wine tax, and there was a um, a, an opportunity for me to go and produce wines for a company called Eighth Estate Winery, which is an urban winery yeah. uh, in, in, in Apley Chow, which was on the third floor of an industrial building in South Horizons. And um, you know, I had you know the I guess the the, the, the title at that point as the only winemaker in Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, there's no grapes in Hong Kong. So I was flying around to different locations, uh, whether it was uh, Australia, New Zealand or Bordeaux or, you know, Tuscany or wherever it might have been that um, we decided to source grapes from and we'd ship them back to Hong Kong and produce the wines at that place. Gotcha. And, um, and so hence the flying winemaker title. Yeah, uh, it works. Came, came, came about. And then, you know, that, that evolved into... Uh, you know, as, as you know, the the LKF Lang Kwai Fong Wine Bar and Shop that was across, opposite the uh, the Fringe Club, um, and then you know morphed into uh, a television season that went on the Discovery Channel on Netflix. Is that still doing the rounds? Yeah, it's still doing the rounds. Um, it's not so much on air in terms of the in-flight entertainment screens anymore because uh, the planes haven't been off the ground. <laughs> but certainly, true, uh, yeah. <laughs> But certainly, um, you know, I, I see it dotted on a lot of these, uh, uh, what do they call it, video-on-demand platforms. Founder and CEO of Flying Winemaker, Eddie McDowell. To end today's week on three, I'll leave you with Steve James, taking a look back at the day in music. And I'll see you next week. I'm Christy Lai. This day, 2008, a U.S. music aficionado sold his uh, record collection, more than three million vinyl albums, singles and compact discs, to an eBay buyer from Ireland. He sold them for just over three million U.S. dollars. It was in... uh 
An eBay spokeswoman said that the sale was one of the highest ever made for an online auction sale. This day, 2002, Elton John accused the music industry of exploiting young singers and dumping talented artists for manufactured groups. He said there are too many average and mediocre acts. It damages real talent getting airplay. It's just fodder. And this day, 1987, Ben E. King was at number one on the UK singles chart. The track had first been released in 1961, became a hit in 1987, all over again after being featured in the film Stand By Me. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. 